All right, the millennial reign of Christ. This is our topic for the next two weeks. If you would take your Bibles or take your handout, we're going to read through Revelation 19, 11 to 21, and uh, Revelation 21 to 10. <clears throat> I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh." And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is uh, the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which proceeded those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest that did dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed are and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. <clears throat> the word millennium means 1,000 years um, from the Latin millennium, 1,000 years. Uh, the term comes from Revelation 20, verses 4 and 5, where it says that certain people will come to life and reign with Christ for 1,000 years. The rest of the dead, the text says, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. 
just prior to this statement, we read that an angel came down from heaven with a great chain, seized the devil, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, the bottomless pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, uh, so that he would, should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were ended. Verses 2 and 3. Now, as you may or may not know, uh, throughout the history of the church, there have been three major views on the time and nature of the millennium, uh, this millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And I want to look at those three views today. I want to explain them, uh, lay out their strengths, lay out their weaknesses. And then next week, Lord willing, I'm going to exegete Revelation 21 to 6, which hopefully will demonstrate to you why it is I hold my interpretive perspective on the millennium, and that it's correct. <laughs> or really, my exegesis of the text in its context will give you some food for thought. But to be honest, um, I'm going to be paying rather short shrift to post-millennialism today, which is one of the major viewpoints. Not a lot of people hold it today, though uh, theonomists are post-millennial, and they've had an uptick, I suppose, in, in recent days. But we'll come to that in a bit. I also, I debated getting into premillennial dispensationalism, which is, which is very popular, um, particularly in America, but in the end I decided not to do that. It would drag this out for another week, and uh, besides, to my knowledge, no member of New City is dispensational in their eschatology. So I can give it a miss, and no one's going to be too upset or left wandering in the eschatological wilderness. Uh, so, what we're going to see battling it out today, particularly, is historic premillennialism and amillennialism. That's a real tongue twister. I'm just going to say pre-mill, amill, post-mill. That's what I'm talking about, okay? Uh, and just any questions, clarifications before we just jump into this? Yep. When it's classical or historic premillennialism, what is classical and historic? We'll get to that in one second. Oh, yeah. Okay, explanation of the three major views. The first view I'm going to explain, all millennialism, is really the simplest. And I would say in the circles that we run, New City, in Reformed Baptist circles, there's, there are a lot of all mills. Uh, certainly, most pastors are, that I know, uh, though I myself am not. However, there are some members of New City who are convinced all millennialists, or who at least lean that way. So if you look at your diagram, it's... All millennialism is pictured in the first diagram. And just note this, it's in your handout. All mills base their interpretation of Revelation 20 as recapitulating or paralleling the events described in Revelation 19, 11 to 21, the text we just read, rather than following it in chronological succession. This is a critical point for all millennialism, since as Hokema admits, and Hokema is like one of the granddaddies of all mills, if one thinks of Revelation 20 as setting forth what follows chronologically after what has been described in chapter 19, one would indeed conclude that the millennium of Revelation 21 to 6 will come after the return of Christ. So just, that needs to be noted, right? So when I read those two chapters just now, on a, just on a natural first reading, did you take them to be describing two distinct chronological events occurring in succession? Or did you take them as parallel accounts? There's two ways of describing one event. Does Revelation 20, in fact, tell the story of Revelation 19, 11 to 21 from a different perspective? 
That's what you need to ask yourself or study it and find out what you believe. It goes without saying, obviously, that will determine how we interpret these two chapters and to a great extent extent, the whole book of Revelation. I'm arguing that Revelation 19 talks about the return of Jesus Christ, like on the final day, right? Um, Also, do chapters, so this goes to the next part, do chapters 19, 11 to 21, and 20, in fact, explicitly, explicitly describe the second coming of Jesus and the final, the final resurrection of believers. Amils will say no. Those two events are not explicitly described in those two chapters, they will argue. Uh, which, of course, massively interprets, impacts how one interprets those two chapters and to a great extent, the rest of the book of Revelation. Okay, so, back to the handout. According to the Amel position, the passage in Revelation 20, 1 to 10, describes the present church age. This is an age in which Satan's influence over the nations has been greatly reduced so that the gospel can be preached to the whole world. Those who are said to be reigning with Christ for the thousand years in Revelation 20 are Christians who have died and are already reigning with Christ in heaven. This is the first resurrection of verse 5. Christians who have already died and are reigning with Jesus in heaven. This view is called amillennial. That, that literally means no millennium because it maintains there is no future millennium yet to come. That's not a good name, really, if you're going to get, you know, persnickety about it. <laughs> it's not correct. It's not that all mills believe that there is no millennium. Rather, all mills don't believe in a literal thousand-year earthly reign, which will follow the return of Jesus. Uh, Anthony Hokema, he writes this, uh, the term amillennialism is not a happy one. It suggests that amillennialists do not believe in any millennium or that they simply ignore the first six verses of Revelation 20, which speaks of a millennial reign. Neither of these two statements is true. Amillennialism is not an accurate de- description of their view. It should be replaced by the expression realized millennialism. The term, however, is a clumsy one, replacing a simple prefix with a three-syllable word. And so I'm going to keep calling it amill. Well, in the literature, it's almost always just called Amil, but it's not technically quite correct. But realized millennialism is actually better theologically for their position. Since Amils believe that Revelation 20 is now being fulfilled in the church age, everything we just read this morning from 19 and 20 is all being fulfilled right now. Um, they hold that the millennium described in that chapter is currently, currently happening. The exact duration of the church age cannot be known, and the expression thousand years is simply a figure of speech for a long period of time in which God's perfect purposes will be accomplished. Really, all three of the positions don't necessarily hold to a literal thousand years. There are people, you know, it's a long period of time. All all the positions kind of go that way. Um, According to... uh, According to this position, the on position, the present church age will continue until the time of Christ's return. And that's the black arrow in your diagram you can see going down. That's, that's the return of Jesus Christ. When Christ returns, there will be a resurrection, now hear this, of both believers and unbelievers. The bodies of believers will rise to be reunited with their spirits and enter into the full enjoyment of heaven forever. Unbelievers will be raised to faith, the final judgment, and eternal condemnation. Believers will also stand before the judgment seat of Christ, but this judgment will only determine 
degrees of reward in heaven, for only unbelievers will be condemned eternally. At this time also, the new heavens and new earth will be, well, that's when it's going to start. That's when it's going to begin. Immediately after the final judgment, the eternal state will commence and it's going to continue forever. Now, the scheme is quite simple. It's nice and it's neat because all of the end time events happen at once, right? Immediately after Christ's return. Some millennialists say that Christ could return at any time. He could have returned five minutes ago, while others, people like Burkhoff, G.K. Beale, argue that certain signs have yet to be fulfilled. All right? Now, clarifying questions. Notice how I'm just phrasing like Something to clarify. Anything I just said there about all mills. All right, then. Postmillennialism. The prefix post means after. According to this view, Christ will return after the millennium. The post-millennial view is represented in the second diagram. According to this view, the progress of the gospel and the growth of the church will gradually increase so that a larger and larger proportion of the world's population will be Christians. As a result, there will be significant Christian influence on society, and society will more and more function according to God's standards, and gradually a millennial age of peace and righteousness will occur on the earth. This millennium will last for a long period of time, not necessarily a literal thousand years. And finally, at the end of this period, Christ will return to earth. Believers and unbelievers will be raised. The final judgment will occur, and there will be a new heaven and new earth, and then we will then enter into the eternal state. The primary characteristic of post-millennialism is that it is very optimistic about the power of the gospel to change lives and bring about much good in the world. Wayne Grudem writes this, Belief in post-millennialism tends to increase in times when the church is experiencing great revival, when there is an absence of war and international conflict, and when it appears that great progress is being made in overcoming the evil and suffering in the world. Uh, The Puritans, by and large, were post-millennial. My patron saint, Jonathan Edwards, he was post-mill to the core. I mean, and and he's looking at uh, the Antichrist as being the Pope of the Catholic Church, and so he would be very careful to be reading newspaper accounts of actually how uh, the English were defeating the French in, in Ontario and Quebec and places like that. And that's, that's Antichrist's kingdom, you know, being, uh, being diminished. And because he thought it very well could be that the revival so they were experiencing in different places in Massachusetts and stuff could, could be the start of the millennium. That's what he was thinking. It could, it could be that. Uh, but, he goes on to say... But post-millennialism is not, is in its most responsible form, is not based simply on the observation of events in the world around us, but on arguments from various scripture passages, obviously, right? So, uh, for instance, the Great Commission leads post-mills to expect that the gospel will go forth in power and eventually result in a largely, largely Christian world. Jesus explicitly said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me since Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth and since he promises to be with us. Uh, in the fulfillment of this commission, post mills expect that it will eventually triumph to the whole world. As well, the parables of the gradual growth of the kingdom indicate that it will eventually fill the earth with its influence. So think of Matthew 13, 30-33. Another parable he put before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest shrub and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches." 
He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. And according to Post Mills, both of these parables indicate that the kingdom will grow in its influence until it permeates and in some sense, in some measure, transforms the entire world. As well, post-millennials will also argue that the world is becoming more Christian. The church is growing and spreading throughout the world, and even when it is persecuted and oppressed, it grows remarkably by the power of God. So it gets better and better and better and better, and then Christ returns. Clarifying questions about that. What, 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 uh, most know people say that they don't know if we're in the millennium now already, and could we theoretically be there, or is it only... That's hard to know. I don't know. Uh, there, are, there are some people that would actually say that right now that's happening. Other people it's not. I want to kind of look into that more, I guess, Glenn. Yeah. Again, Edwards was saying it could have been like in 17, yeah. 1730s, right? I think so. I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on post mills, though, because like, no one here, as far as I know, is. And also, it's not a very popular view now, nowadays. Now it's more... It's premillennial dispensationalism, certainly in America, and it's amillennialism, and it's historic premillennialism. Those are the three that are, by and large, the, the bad boys. So. <laughs> okay, uh, number three, classical or historical, historic premillennialism. It's the same thing. The prefix pre means before, and the premillennial position says that Christ will come back before the millennium. So he, they're arguing. He comes back in Revelation 19. Right? And then chapter 20 is the millennium. But he comes back in 19. Pre-millennium. Um, it's represented in the third diagram. This viewpoint has a long history from the earliest centuries onward. That's why it's called historic. Um, and heads up, this is my interpretive conclusion. So you're going to see bias towards this. I'm going to sow seeds of doubt for the other ones. But this one I'm like, yeah. <laughs> okay. According to this viewpoint, the present church age will continue... Until, as it nears the end, a time of great tribulation and suffering comes to the earth. That's the T in the diagram. It stands for tribulation. Do you see that? After that time of tribulation, Christ will return to earth to establish a millennial kingdom. Now, just hear that. He will return to earth to establish a millennial kingdom. When he comes back, believers who have died will rise from the dead. Their bodies will be reunited with their spirits. And these believers will reign with Christ on earth for 1,000 years. Some premillennialists take this to be a literal 1,000, while others understand it to be symbolic for a long period of time. Uh, okay, hang on to your hats. During this time, Christ will be physically present on earth in his resurrected body, and he will reign as king over the entire earth. The believers who have been raised from the dead... And those who were on earth when Christ returns, those believers, will receive glorified resurrection bodies that will never die. And in these resurrection bodies, they will live on earth and reign with Christ. Of the unbelievers who remain on earth, many, but not all, will turn to Christ and be saved. Jesus will reign in perfect righteousness. and There will be peace throughout the earth. Many pre-mills hold that the earth will be renewed and we will, in fact, see the new heavens, new earth at this time. But it's not essential to premillennialism to hold to this. One can be a premillennialist and hold that the, the new heavens, new earth will only occur until after the final judgment. I would be in that latter camp. 
New heavens, new earth is after, after the final judgment. At the beginning of the thousand years, Satan will be bound and cast into the abyss, the bottomless pit, so that he will have no influence on the earth during the millennium. According to the premillennial viewpoint, at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be loosed from the bottomless pit and will join forces with many unbelievers who have submitted outwardly to Christ's reign, but have inwardly been seething in rebellion against him. Satan will gather these rebellious people for battle against Christ, but they will be decisively defeated. Usually the Armageddon battle is understood to have symbolic and continuing and recurring effect rather than one particular event at the end of time. Um, Christ will then rise from the dead, raised from the dead, all the unbelievers who have died throughout history. Uh, so we look at chapter 20, verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended, and they will stand before him for the final judgment. After the final judgment has occurred, believers will enter into the eternal state. Now, so we're, we're going we're to get into all this, look at strengths, weaknesses for all the sides, but just clarifying questions about that. Let's look at a consideration of the arguments for amillennialism. All right? uh, and you're, again, you're going to see historic pre-mill and amill battling it out today in my lesson. That's kind of where we're going. But in favor of the amill view, the following arguments are advanced. And I think some of these arguments are better than others. And bear in mind, I don't agree with this position, uh, but I am trying to be fair. I, I, I've done my best to represent this position accurately. So hold me to account, all right? When we look through the whole of the Bible, Ah Mills will say only one passage, Revelation 20, 1-6, appears to be teaching a, a, a future earthly millennial rule of Christ. And that passage itself is obscure. And so it's unwise to base such a major doctrine on one passage of uncertain and widely disputed interpretation. I mean, you're taking these six verses from the book of Revelation of all books and saying this is actually what's going to happen, resurrection bodies, the return of Jesus Christ, reigning for a thousand years. It, it's, it's uncertain, it's widely disputed, it's an obscure kind of text, that's not what, you know. So, how then do all mills understand Revelation 21 to 6? As I've said, the all mill interpretation sees this passage as referring to the present church age. So, according to the all-millennial interpretation, the binding of Satan in verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 20 is the binding that occurred when? Do you know? During Jesus' earthly reign. Jesus spoke of the binding of the strong man right, in order to plunder his house in Matthew 12, 29. And he said that the Spirit of God was at that time present in power to triumph over demonic forces. Matthew 12, 28. It, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Similarly, with respect to the breaking of Satan's power, Jesus said during his ministry, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Luke 10, 18. Also, the amillennialist argues that this binding of Satan in Revelation 20 is for a specific purpose. Verse 3, it reads, to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. And they would argue this is precisely what happened when Jesus came and the gospel began to be proclaimed, not simply to Jews, but after Pentecost, to all the nations of the world. In fact, the worldwide missionary activity of the church 
and the presence of the church in most or all the nations of the world shows that the power that Satan had in the Old Testament to deceive the nations that he had in the Old Testament and, and kind of keep them in darkness, in spiritual darkness, that's been broken with the, with the coming of Christ the first time. G.K. Beale, um, he's a Revelation scholar, he's on mill. He says this, Satan is still active but now must operate subject to Christ's authority. His destructive powers mysteriously serve to further the deeper and wider purposes of God. The fact that the ruler of this world is cast out, John 12, 31, means that henceforth Jesus can draw all men, the saved from every nation, to himself, John 12, 32. Satan is no longer able, able to deceive the nations concerning the plan of God's salvation. In the Amel view, the scene described in verse 4 occurs in heaven. John says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony to Jesus. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Since John sees souls and not physical bodies, it is argued this scene must be occurring in heaven. Now pay super close attention. When the text says in verse 4 that they came to life, it doesn't mean that these people, Christians, receive a bodily resurrection to, to the Amel perspective. That's not what that means. Amel spiritualized that. No, they came to life in the sense of coming into heavenly existence in the presence of Christ and beginning to reign with him from heaven. According to this view, the phrase first resurrection, verse 5, refers to this going to heaven to be with the Lord after the believer dies. So it's talking about the intermediate state, right? Verse 6, blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. Again, that's not a bodily resurrection, but a coming into the presence of God in heaven to reign with him now. What we read in verse 5, the rest of that dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. These people are the lost who are raised to the resurrection of judgment. Now, I think that the lost as well. But uh, what the primo believes is the first resurrection um, is not a bodily. Re- what the primo believes is that the first resurrection there is a bodily resurrection. That's a huge, huge difference. Amels believe the rest of the dead, those who do not share in the first resurrection, that spiritual resurrection into the intermediate state to reign with Christ, are unbelievers on their way to hell. Those who are saved become priests serving eternally in God's presence while the lost are forever separated from him. I know that's a lot to take in. It can be confusing stuff. So what I want to do now is just read through verses 1 to 6 and ask three questions, all right? According to Ah Mills, who is the text talking about? When does the text occur in salvation history? Where does it occur, all right? The who and the where doesn't really work for the first three verses, just the when. I'll just read that. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Okay, so when, to the all-mill perspective, when do all those events occur? The entire period between Christ's first coming and his second coming. Everything you just read there, right? Verse 4. We're going to just keep doing this. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. Who is that? Dead Christians. When is that? 
the interadvental period. Where is that? In heaven. And I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony with Jesus and because of the word of God. Who is that? Dead Christians. When? Interadvental period. Where? In heaven. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received this mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Who is that? Dead Christians. When? The entire period between Christ's first coming and his second coming. Where does that take place, that verse? In heaven. Five. This is the difference. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Who is that? Unbelievers. When? At the return of Christ. Where? Before the judgment throne, before being cast into hell. 5b. This is the first resurrection. Who's that talking about? Dead Christians. During the entire interadvental period in heaven. All right? Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Who? Dead Christians. When? The entire interadvental period, first and second coming. Where is that taking place? In heaven. All right. I'm belaboring that because I don't find it exegetically convincing. All right. So I'm just putting it out that that's actually how it's read and I am being fair. And by the way, folks, in the all scheme, there is no passage in the book of Revelation that explicitly depicts the bodily resurrection of believers. Explicitly. Don't look for it here. All right. According to all the only physical resurrection that we see in chapter 20 is in reference to unbelievers in the, in the parenthetical remark of verse five. That's the only place it occurs. That's very interesting. Of course, all males wouldn't deny that believers are physically resurrected at the same time when the parenthetical remark of verse 5 takes place. But you see what I'm getting at. In the all male scheme, there is no explicit text depicting the bodily resurrection of Christians in the book of Revelation. Okay, think about that. Or, Or the glorious second coming of Christ. On this resurrection theme, too, a second argument often proposed in favor of amillennialism is the fact that scripture teaches only one resurrection when both believers and unbelievers will be raised, not two resurrections. Not, like I believe, okay, a resurrection of believers before the millennium, the millennium begins at Christ's return and a resurrection of unbelievers to judgment after the end of the millennium. This is an important argument because the pre-mill view requires Two separate resurrections. The part that the point that I'm arguing for, it requires two separate resurrections, separated by how long a period of time? Thousand years. years. Evidence in favor of only one resurrection, though, is found in at least three passages. Jesus says, John 5, 28, the hour is coming when all of those who are in their tombs will hear his voice and come forth, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Here Jesus speaks of a single hour when both believing and unbelieving dead will come forth from their tombs. All will say, there you go. Similarly, when Paul is on trial before Felix, he explains that he has a hope that God, has hope in God that his Jewish opponents also accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Acts 24, 15. Once again, he speaks of a single resurrection of both believers and unbelievers. Finally, we read in Daniel Uh, Daniel 12, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Again, it looks like one resurrection, right? Three, 
The idea of glorified believers, this is a, for the Amel position, they're saying the idea of glorified believers and sinners living on earth together for a thousand years, that's too difficult to accept. Burkhoff says it's impossible to understand how a part of the old earth and of sinful humanity can exist alongside a part of the new earth and a humanity that is glorified. How can perfect saints and glorified bodies have communion with sinners in the flesh? How can glorified sinners live in this sin-laden atmosphere amid scenes of death and decay? It's a good question. Four, a fourth argument often proposed in favor of all millennialism. If Christ came in glory to reign on the earth, then how could people still persist in sin? Once Jesus is actually present in his resurrection body and reigning as king over all the earth, does it not seem highly unlikely that people would still reject him and that evil and rebellion would grow until the earth is... until grow on the earth until eventually Satan could gather the nations for battle against Christ. Because that's what's being posited by the historic pre-male position. A fifth argument. There seems to be no convincing purpose for this millennium. Once the church age has ended and Christ has returned, then what is the reason for delaying the start of the eternal state? Why, why wait another thousand years? In conclusion, all millennialists say that Scripture seems to indicate that all, all the major events yet to come before this eternal state will occur at once. Right? It, it's very neat. It's very, it's very appealing. <laughs> um, Christ will return. There will be one resurrection of believers and unbelievers. The final judgment will take place. A new heavens and new earth will be established. And we will enter immediately into the eternal state with no future millennium. What do you think? <laughs> That's a big question. I think at the point, because um, I've heard that before, but like, what's the point of the millennium? What extra purpose kind of does it serve? I find that to be one of the more convincing yeah. um, points for Anna. I'm just, you know, why does it need to happen? But from the female perspective, it would be like, well, many will come to Christ, so that's what needs to happen. Good. Yeah, well, it, it seems, I mean, of course, you just presented this case first, so it seems, it seems like it makes sense. It seems like it also fits more with the, I guess, like the creeds and confessions of the church, where it's Christ will come, those who have done good will enter eternal life, those who have done evil will enter eternal fire, and, you know, eat like that. It seems like it's yeah. consistent there. And, and you've, you've never heard me in 15 years of preaching, probably, talk about the return of Jesus Christ, and I've believed my position the whole time, by the way. And actually, the return of Jesus Christ, millennial period for a thousand years, resurrected believers, of course, the sinners, and then, then, you know, you've never heard that from me once. I've always said it in the same way as kind of the creeds and confessions are, right? Christ returns, judgment, you know, so. And I don't think I'm being consistent by saying that, so I, I do have a response to that, obviously. <laughs> but you've never heard me say millennium, I don't think, once in my pulpit. Okay, at this point, I'll respond briefly to those Amel arguments, though on some points, a fuller answer will be developed in my arguments next week for premillennialism. I'm going to exegete the text. That's, it all comes down to exegesis too, guys, obviously, right? It's not just have this system that you impose like a grid on the text and squish it through it no matter what. By hook or by crook, you're going to come out all mill or you're going to come out pre-mill or whatever it is. 
Um, and you have to look at 19 and 20 together as you exegete it in the context of Romans. You have to do that. In response to the objection that only one passage teaches a future earthly millennium, several things should be noticed. Um, the Bible only needs to say something once in order for it to be true and something that we must believe. The, t- the story of the confusion of languages of the Tower of Babel, for example, is only taught in Genesis 11, 1 to 9. Yet we believe it's true because Scripture teaches it. Similarly, if only one passage taught a future millennial reign of Christ, we should still believe it, as long as we're interpreting the text correctly. <laughs> Moreover, it's not surprising that this doctrine should be clearly taught in the book of Revelation. There was somewhat of a similar situation at the end of the Old Testament era. The entire Old Testament has no explicit teaching to the effect that the Messiah would come twice. Explicitly. Once as a suffering Messiah who would die and rise again, earning our salvation, and then later as the conquering king over all the earth. The first and second comings of Christ are hinted at in the Old Testament prophets, for sure. I mean, it's, it's actually there in the text. I'm not denying that. But they are nowhere, it's nowhere explicitly taught because God did not deem it necessary to reveal that amount of detail about his plan of redemption before it happened. Similarly, in several of the Old Testament and New Testament books leading up to the time of the writing of Revelation, there are hints of a future earthly millennium prior to the eternal state, but the explicit teaching about it was left until John wrote Revelation. Since Revelation is the New Testament book that most explicitly deals about uh, things yet future, uh, it is appropriate that this more explicit revelation of the future millennium would be put in at this point in the Bible. Uh, just, just another way to think about this, okay? If you think, okay, only one place in the whole Bible, and it's here, it's this very obscure, debated kind of text. Uh, what about 1 Corinthians chapter 15? And that very brief description of baptism for the dead. Remember that? Paul describes the baptism for the dead. What on earth does the baptism for the dead mean? In the history of the church, there have been 42 different explanations of that. Literally, 42, all right? The question is not that we're doubting that Baptism for the dead means something, and that it's true. That's not, it's that we're not quite sure what it means, right? That's why there's 42 explanations. It does mean something. Um, but if you're expounding 1 Corinthians 15, actually preaching through that text, you still have to give a judgment on balance about what baptism for the dead means, right? You have to. It's the same thing with the millennium. It only occurs explicitly one time. But that doesn't mean it doesn't mean anything. The question is, what does it mean? Should we put this into our statements of faith? No, I don't think we should. But that's a little different from saying it doesn't mean anything. Something else I'd want to say is that although it's the only passage that speaks of 1,000-year reign of Christ, and the 1,000 years may be taken figuratively for a lengthy period of time, judging by the kind of usage that numbers have in the book of Revelation, uh, there are other passages that do seem, in my view, to refer to the kind of splendor that's mentioned in this millennial period that is still short of the splendor of the new heavens and new earth. So, for example, famously, Isaiah 65. See, I will create a new heavens and new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. Again, 
What does that mean? What's it talking about? What's it referring to? In Isaiah 65, we, have a time, we read of a time period when a young man will die at the age of 100. Uh, anybody who dies at the age of 100 will be thought prematurely deceased. You didn't get your full time allotment, right? The onset, it's, it's, this is the, the onset of the new heavens and new earth. It's coming, right? Here then is a picture. It's not, that's not though the new heavens and new earth. That you still have people dying, but you're, they're dying at 100 as young men. It's like, oh, you got, you know, you got, you got a bad, a raw deal there. You got 100. Um, here's a picture then that looks at a, 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 that looks like a time of wonderful crops, wonderful splendor and growth, but it still speaks of people dying. People will die. They're not just living a lot longer. If you read a, a commentary like uh, by E.J. Young, uh, he will say that this is merely an old covenant way of signaling eternal longevity. In other words, nobody is really going to die at all. That's how he deals with that text. Well, yeah, maybe. But then we read Isaiah 25 and 26, and we see that Isaiah can speak about eternal longevity quite clearly. He has no problem talking about that. He doesn't need people dying at the age of 100 as young men to do that. Um, Isaiah 25, 7 to 8. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. 26, 19. But your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Those verses assert the reality of the resurrection. Yahweh can defeat every enemy, including the final one, death. So are we really supposed to insist that the young man who dies at 100 in Isaiah 65 signals eternal longevity? Or... Is that just a bit of forced interpretation to fit a certain eschatological outlook? On the face of it, Isaiah 65 sounds to me like a time of fantastically restored blessings that's still shy of a new heavens and new earth. And the perfections uh, there where there's no death anymore. And there are a handful of Old Testament texts like that. Not many, but there's more than just one. The question is, what do you do with all of them? In response to the allegation that the passage that teaches the future millennial kingdom of Christ is obscure, pre-millennialists, people like me, will respond, I don't find it obscure at all. <laughs> In fact, I would argue that one advantage of the pre-mill position is that it understands Revelation 19 and 20 in a pretty straightforward sense, right? The text, Jesus returns in chapter 19, and the text is that Satan will be bound and cast into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. The pre-mill says that the time is coming when Satan will be bound and cast into the bottomless pit for a thousand years after the return of Jesus Christ. The text speaks of a future thousand-year reign of Christ on earth after his return. The pre-mill expects a future thousand-year reign of Christ on earth after his return. It speaks of those raised in the first resurrection, and the pre-mill says that there will be a first resurrection of believers who are blessed and holy, verse 6, and a second resurrection at the end of the thousand years for the rest of the dead, verse 5. According to the premillennialists, obscurity only enters the passage when an interpreter tries to find in it something other than such a straightforward interpretation. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> I think it's not obscure at all. It's actually on a surface level reading of the text. It makes a lot of sense. Particularly as 19 describes the return of Jesus Christ. I mean, that, that's going to be everything. Again, Amos are saying, no, that's not the return of Jesus Christ. This is indicative of the whole church age. Now, with respect to the interpretation of Revelation 21 to 6, as given by Amil, several difficulties, I would argue, arise. Although Matthew 12, 28 29, and Luke 10 18 do speak of a binding of Satan during Jesus' earthly ministry, the binding of Satan described in Revelation, I would argue, is much more extensive than that. We're going to look into this a lot more next week, but this passage does not simply say that Satan is bound at this time, but, but speaks of the bottomless pit, the abyss. 
And it says the angel that came down from heaven, he had this great chain and he bound Satan and he threw him into the abyss and he shut it and it sealed it over him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were ended. More than a mere restriction of activity is in view here, I would argue. That's very dramatic language. The imagery of throwing Satan into a pit and shutting it and sealing it over him gives a picture of total removal from influence on the earth. To say that Satan is now, right, as Amel's argued, now he is chained up in a bottomless pit that is shut and sealed over forever simply does not fit the present world situation during the church age in which Satan's activity is still very strong, in which he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour, in which he can fill someone's heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, and which, in which pagan sacrifices they offer to demons and not to God, 1 Corinthians 10.20. Even after the binding of Satan during Jesus' ministry, it remains true that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. This is why Christians still must contend not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6.12. This is because even during the church age, though the gospel is able to come with triumph and break down the forces of demonic opposition to the spread of the kingdom of God, nonetheless, Satan's influence has not been fully removed from the world. The spirit of Antichrist is in the world already, 1 John 4, 3. And in fact, we know that we are of God and the whole world is in the power of the evil one, 1 John 5, 19. Brothers and sisters, this repeated theme in the New Testament, the theme of Satan's continual activity on earth throughout the church age, makes it extremely difficult to think that Satan has been chained up, thrown into the bottomless pit, and has been shut and sealed for over for a thousand years. And I'll talk about this more next week. Uh, and this is, this is very important, and I'll probably close with this. But we're we're going to continue on. And I'll even do three weeks of this. I don't even know. But... This is not the picture of Satan that we have in the rest of the book of Revelation. That, that's a critical uh, nail, I think, in the coffin of all mills. It seems to me, and to people of my interpretive ilk, that what John emphasizes in this book, the book of Revelation, is that until the end, end Satan is in the position of chapter 12. That is, he's being cast out of heaven, but on the earth, he's full of rage. He's full of enmity against the woman and her offspring, and that offspring is us. That's Revelation 12. And folks, that's just a huge, huge part of the book of Revelation. The beast is behind so much in this book. He's everywhere. If he's not behind it directly, then he's using the second beast who's full of deceit. The devil is using the beast. He's using the second beast. And the whore, the great prostitute, is riding the first beast. The devil is active all the time. And if one of the beasts dies, then he comes back to life again. This is just so much a part of the entire outline, like the schema of the book of Revelation, that in the final analysis, I would argue the Amel interpretation doesn't make sense of the book of Revelation itself. The imagery can only speak of the total removal of Satan's active influence from the earth. I've got to stop it there. This is going to take longer than I thought. So <laughs> just, just, we'll, just leave, we'll just leave it at that, all right? And then, Lord willing, we'll pick this up next week. And uh, this might go into three weeks as I'm looking at this now, but it might just be two. I'm going to exegete, though, Revelation 20. There's still more I've got to talk about with this, all right? So go back, listen to this again, come back next week with your questions, your, your rebuttals, all that kind of stuff, and we'll continue on. All right, thanks, guys.